Today I'm going to talk to you about kings, and I know you're super excited, um, because that's a fascinating subject for you, right? Uh, maybe not, but we're going to talk about it differently. Throughout these next few weeks, we're going to be talking about the promised king, not just the promised child, not just the promised savior, but there's an aspect of royalty, of reigning, of ruling that is found throughout the scriptures. Um, and honestly, it's something that we kind of struggle with, that imagery, because kingship is not really something we deal with on a regular basis. Like if we talk about a king, I mean, we, maybe we think of King Arthur, or maybe we think of the Queen of England, but we don't really think about kings in the sense that the Bible talks about kings. In fact, here in the West, like we kind of bristle at the idea. Like we fought a war to get out from under a king, right? Uh, you know, our, our motto through the Revolutionary War was, don't tread on me. You know, we don't do what other people tell us to do. And, and you know, that kind of that mindset not only um, prompted a group of people to rebel and to create this nation, but that spirit in many ways has continued within our nation since then. So as we read through this, it's important that we understand what the Bible's talking about and it's also important that we, that we approach the Scriptures in such a way that we're willing to listen and to hear and to be changed by them. So I'm going to give you a little bit of an overview today because I don't have a lot of time with you today. Um, and then um, I'm going to leave you some questions that we're going to ask. over the Questions you want to begin asking yourself now. On our way out, some of our kids are going to be doing some decorating of the tree like when you walk out of here, like the tree's going to be super full from about four feet down. For, but from about four feet up, it's not going to be. So some of you tall people on your way out, grab an ornament and let's fill the top in, and that will be with us for the rest of this um, season. And we look throughout the Bible, this language of ruling. And now if you've been with us for the last few weeks, this is not new to you. We've been talking about ruling and reigning for several weeks now because when we look at what God was originally intending for us, uh, God intended for us to rule the earth with him. So the idea of reigning and ruling is something that's found throughout Scripture, and it's found from Genesis 1 all the way to the end of Revelation. Um, the first place we come to it is in Genesis 1.28, uh, and, and uh, the Bible says that, that we are to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. So this idea that we not only manage, but we subdue, we take care of, we rule over this creation. That's what God originally intended. And in fact, what we'll find throughout Scripture is that he continues to invite us um, to that. The next time we see ruling in Scripture is actually the very next story, which is Cain and Abel in Genesis 4.8, in which we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, in which uh, Cain and Abel both bring their offerings, God accepts Abel's but rejects Cain's. And we don't really know why he rejects. He doesn't say why, he just says he rejects his. Cain gets super unhappy. And then God has this interesting conversation with him and he says, um, sin is crouching at your door, but you can rule over it. So there's an idea of ruling over even the, the, the uh, temptations and forces of the world that lead us to rebel against God. You can rule over those temptations. And we know in that story, Cain did not, um, and it followed him for the rest of his life. 
When we get to Deuteronomy 10.17, this is presumably written uh, by Moses. And this is what he says about God. He says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. He is the Lord of lords and the God of gods. Now, usually when you walk out of here on a Sunday, you, there's, there's some things that are kind of low-lying fruit, and then there are some things that you could, you know what, that's cur- I'm curious about that. I need to go look into that. And, and if there was a phrase in this, in Roman, or Deuteronomy 10.17, I would go explore is, what in the world is he talking about God of gods? Anyways, we're not going to talk about that today. Um, but that's something you could go and study. At the end of the book, in the end of the Bible, in Revelation 17, verse 14, says, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For He is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. At the end of the day, you were created and called to reign. Now this concept is not foreign to us. Like, we deal with rulers all the time, don't we? While we may not have kings, we have presidents, and we have Congress. Now, even outside of just the political governing structures of our nation, we also have bosses, right? We have people that are over us, like our wives, right, man? <laughs> all right, not really. That was, a jo- that was a joke. All right. Although sometimes true, which, by the way, if you take literally, because now I've opened a can of worms. I didn't even mean to. I was just joking. But if you take literally what God says about men and women, where he's co-rulers. So really one does not rule over the other. In fact, if you go back, for, gosh, this is all another sermon. But if you go back and you look at the curse after the fall, and this has been used for years to say one rules over the other, it says the man will rule over you. But that was not a prescription. That was a curse. Like this is part of the problem of the fall. We'll have this struggle between men and women that we still have today, right? But that was a curse. That was not a prescription. And many people have used it as a pre- Anyways, that one was free. You can go study that one later too. But God intended for us to rule and to reign with him. Find when we read throughout Scripture is what that rule looks like. And that's what I want to talk with you about because at the end of the day, every single one of us, we choose who we allow to rule us or to reign over us. Every one of us has invited someone or something to rule over us, and we'll decide who that's going to be. And the whole story of Scripture is about that very thing. And when we choose God, then He is intending for us to come back and to rule and reign with him. We read about that in Revelation 3, verse 21. It says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says through the churches. So those who are followers of Jesus are co-rulers, reigners with him. This does not mean that we are equal with God. Every time we think that we are somehow equal with God, that's when problems show up. But there's this incredible characteristic about God that is so much different than most of our earthly kings 
presidents, Congress, bosses, managers, and rulers, and that God has always enjoyed sharing reign with others. This is one of the key characteristics about God that is so misunderstood when we talk about power structures and the church. God has always invited others to rule with Him. That does not mean that we are just like Him. So let's not make that mistake. There are those who have said, well, you are just like God. I mean, that that was the original temptation. No, we are not just like God. But He has chosen and empowered us to be able to do that, and then sin entered into the world. And that's why we have so many struggles just in leading, in authority, in kingship, in governance. That's where they come from. So if God is ruler and He's inviting us to rule with Him, what I want to leave with you today is, so what does that rule look like? Because we're talking about the promised king. That's what we'll end with. Where are we promised this king? But there's a story that we have to follow throughout Scripture. And we're going to go really quickly through it. So what did God have in mind? I want you to listen to these next couple of passages. And every one of you in some way have some level of rule and reign. I don't know where it is. If you're a parent, you've got kids. If you are a boss at work, you've got people that you manage. If you're a manager, you have people that you manage. If you're on a class project and you're the person that takes the lead on the class project and you take any level of leadership or authority over someone else, no matter what it is, the Bible describes what that should ultimately look like. And we read about that in Deuteronomy 17, verse 14, because there was actually, before kings were ever introduced, In Deuteronomy, one of the books of the law describes if you're going to have a king, which you eventually will want a king, this is what the king should do. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, talking about the promised land, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. So usually, if you're a student of the Old Testament, you're like, well, well, wait a minute. Like God didn't want them to have a king. And we'll read that in just a minute. But he actually gave allowance all the way back in Deuteronomy that this is going to happen. But this is a prescription of when that king comes, this is the kind of king you should have. Verse 15, You may indeed set a king over you, number one, whom the Lord your God will choose. So That's important, number one. God chooses. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. Now, you may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And the reason that was, was you don't invite someone outside of the house of Israel to rule Israel because God has chosen Israel to be his people to redeem the world. And the way he does that is because Jesus comes out of the house of Israel. And you're not going to bring in some outsider who in their early Hebrew mind considered as a worshiper of a false god. So we don't bring in somebody who's going to be worshiping some other god. I, Yahweh, am your god. You are going to choose someone from among you, and they will lead you, but it's someone that I should choose. So somehow we have to find what God wants, but God will never choose someone who's following another god. 
Verse 16, and this is where it gets interesting. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Now, why is that important? Horses were the war machine of the Old Testament. Like You don't go up against an enemy without horses, and you certainly don't go back to Egypt to get those horses. Now, interestingly, a very well-known king does just that. I'll mention that in a minute. He must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Because the Lord has said, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. So, number two, he's going to have one wife. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Not a bunch of wealth. He's not going to pursue wealth. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, this is where it gets interesting. He shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. Now he's not just talking about this particular passage. He's talking about the entire Old Testament law. And he's saying that this is what a king who is set over you is going to do. He is going to write it out word for word, and he's going to have a priest check it to make sure that it's correct. Now, this speaks to the early Hebrew and Jewish understanding of instructing your kids. Now, if you kids think you have it bad now, here's what your life would have looked like. Whenever you're up until about 10 years old, you are going to have to go memorize the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You're going to have to go memorize those word for word. Now, if you are super good at that, then some rabbi is going to come alongside and say, you know, you really have what it takes to memorize the rest of the Old Testament. And so they pull you out and you continue your schooling. Although if you're not chosen for that role, you're going to go on to work. You're going to learn to trade usually from your mom or dad. And then you're going to go on and you're going to live your life. And then those who memorize word for word the entire Old Testament, the very best of the best of those will be chosen to become rabbis. And what Deuteronomy is saying here is that a king who is going to rule over you is going to write down all of the laws of the Old Testament, Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There we go. Is that five? Yes, I think so. First five books of the Bible. That's the Torah. He's going to write them and he's going to know them. I wonder how many of our world leaders do that. I wonder how many people in this room can do that. I wonder how many pastors in this room can do that. (laughs) Because I haven't memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. But this was an expectation for every child coming up in Jewish culture. And once you learned that, and once you knew that, then you would continue on with your life. It says, he shall write for himself a book and a copy of this law approved by the priests, and it shall be with him. And he shall read it. He shall read in it all the days of his life. So not only is he going to write it, not only is he going to keep it with him every single day, he's going to read it every single day. He's going to read God's word every single day. This is the king that God says, this is the kind of king you need. 
that he may, and the reason he's going to read it every day, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. So that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. Because what is the greatest commandment? To love God and to love others. We spend a lot of time talking about what does it mean to love others. It means to love others is to elevate others to at least where we are. That's exactly what this says a good king will do. A good king will not elevate himself over others, over his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Now, if you want to know what does a good king do, because surely a king can't just sit around reading the Bible all the time, right? If you go and you read in Psalm 72, which we're not going to do today, um, it will tell you what a good king does. If you have a good king, a king is going to do two things. Number one, agriculture is going to flourish, which means there's going to be plenty of food. Now, for agriculture to flourish... That means that a lot of other things are happening. Work is going well. People are, you know, there's plenty of rain, and there's going to be plenty of seed for people to sow. There's going to be harvesters to harvest. Um, there's going to be plenty. Agriculture is going to flourish. And the second thing is, is that the poor will be taken care of. This is what Psalm 72 says. A good king makes sure that agriculture flourishes and the poor are taken care of. Go read it. That's what Psalm 72 says. Now, eventually Israel is going to ask for this king. And I would just say at this point, like if we could have this kind of a president, like what would we look like? Well, we may not be a nation for long, to be honest, because they have no army. But boy, what a godly person this would be. So eventually Israel decides they're going to ask for a king, and the reason they're going to ask for a king is because they want an army. And they look around and they say, look at all the other nations that have an army. Have you noticed every nation that's conquered us has an army? <laughs> no, really. Maybe we need one of those. And then we'll be okay. And this is where Samuel comes in and he says, whoa, 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 whoa. You really don't want a king. God will be your king. And in his mind and what in his faith, what he's thinking of is when they came into the promised land, and if you'll remember one such story in which they overtook a large fortified city, simply by having a torch and a clay pot, and all they did was break the clay pot and scream and yell, and everyone in the fortified city split. They ran, and the city was theirs. But that takes a great amount of faith to believe that's the kind of person who's going to lead you whenever an army comes after you. Throughout Scripture, whenever we read that Israel gets overtaken by someone, it has always, 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 always preceded by they turned away from God. The whole Old Testament. If you want to read, especially go and read Judges. The whole book of Judges is followed God, blessing, turned from God, overrun by another nation. Over and over and over again. So in order to have God as your king, it does take a great amount of faith that he is going to intervene in worldly affairs. They wanted a king. And Samuel said, whoa, 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 whoa. You don't really want a king. Now this is interesting because you and I and every single person who's ever ruled the world and every single person who's ever drawn breath in the world were created initially to rule and reign with God. Every one of us. Part of the image of God that's within us. But they wanted something else. 
They wanted a ruler that was not God, that would take care of them instead of God. And you know what? Even if we don't follow God, we at least have the army to protect us. Yeah. And so he issues this warning in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And he says, so, you want a king? This is what you're going to get. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. Another war machine, which is a chariot. You don't have just, hey, we're going to go take the chariot for a Sunday afternoon ride because the weather's so nice. That's not why you had a chariot. You had a chariot to go to war. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers, presumably for him. Not like just as a job, but you're going to do these things for the king. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. So we have these competing passages. We have, this is what God said a, a ruler should be. And this is what broken humanity tends to do. But because you're choosing someone to reign and rule over your life other than God, He's not going to rescue you from your choice, which we see throughout Scripture. God gives us choice. He can rescue us, but only when we turn from our choice. That's the whole story of the Gospel. Not the whole story, but a good part of it. Now in all, you go back and you read the, the nation of Israel. Uh, you read the northern and southern kingdoms. Interesting, you go in and there will be a split at some point. And now we have two kingdoms within Israel. If you go and you add all those kings up, the nation of Israel had 42 kings. Now if you go read all of the stories of all those kings, you will have eight of them that were decent kings. Like all the rest were horrible, mean, terrible kings. Only eight of the 42 kings they would have from this moment ended up being any good whatsoever. And even the great ones had lots of major problems. David known as the greatest of the kings, was an adulterer and a murderer, literally killed his best friend so he could sleep with his best friend's wife. Like, this is the kind of person you'd be like, dude, you are messed up. I'm done with you. Don't let him come over, right? Don't let him near your wife, right? The man he killed was one of the mighty men of David, one of his very best friends who had given his life. He was willing to give his life for David. David was he had serious issues. But David also had a repentant heart. But David had issues. The second most notable king that we think of 
is probably the worst king of all. And his name was Solomon. And yet Solomon is said to have been the wisest man who ever lived. We celebrate Solomon today. The very fact that I say Solomon was their, perhaps their worst king may even create some conflict in your own mind about, well, I don't know that that's true because every time I hear about Solomon, I hear good things. I mean, the nation became wealthy. I mean, he took care of the nation and it grew. It prospered. They had a, they had a national defense. But under Solomon, Solomon went to Egypt and guess what he got there? Horses. This is exactly what Deuteronomy said not to do. He also started enslaving Israelites and non-Israelites. So he began enslaving people to build his kingdom, taxing them, building his wealth, building his army. And the reason we love that is because deep inside of us somewhere there's a desire to see our own personal kingdom built. Solomon did it, but he did the exact opposite of everything Deuteronomy said a king was supposed to do. You're also only supposed to have one wife, and I don't know that anyone in the Old Testament has more wives than him, including marrying Pharaoh's daughter. Solomon was not a good king. He was not a mean king. But he was not a good king. See, one of the things when we look at lordship, reign, and rule within our lives Bad rule doesn't have to mean they're mean. It just means they lead you to bad places, which is exactly what Solomon did. Following Solomon would be a slew of bad kings because they were following his lead. He was not a good king. Of the 42 kings that they wanted for themselves instead of God, only eight were considered kind of good, and even among those, they really weren't good kings. This sets us up for what we celebrate at Christmas. Why I'm taking you through this little journey. You've probably heard the phrase, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Did you know that phrase was uttered not about political power, but about church power? By a man named Sir John Dahlberg Acton. This is his quote. He said, power tends to corrupt. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. That's the full quote. Now he didn't speak this, he wrote this. And when he wrote this, he put it in a letter to the bishop at the time because he was a part of the Anglican church in which a great discussion was going on about the papacy. And that was, is the Pope infallible? And he said no is not infallible, and if you try to elevate the Pope to a place of infallibility, then you are asking for trouble because power tends to corrupt. Absolute power, which is there anything other than absolute power when someone's labeled as infallible? Corrupts absolutely. It is impossible for a person to actually lead with that amount of power and not be corrupted because that kind of power is only supposed to be wielded by God Himself. We corrupt it every single time, which we see all over the world today. Right? Just think of who are the worst leaders of the world in your mind. Maybe you all come up with different ones. But absolutely, power absolutely 
corrupts. But yet, still, God gives us a choice. Who will we choose to rule ourselves? Or will we allow Him to rule us? See, You don't have to be in politics to make that decision every single day. It's not just at election years that we make these decisions in our lives. You woke up this morning deciding what's going to rule in your life. You will wake up tomorrow deciding what's going to rule in your life. We all make these decisions every day, and God is very willing for you to make that choice, and He says, where one choice is blessing, the other choice there is cursing. And the cursing at its worst feels like blessing. Do you choose to allow God to reign within your life? Isaiah 9 is a prophecy of the coming of Jesus that is often read at Christmas. And while we read and we King of kings, Lord of lords, Prince of peace, I know all that language. That's Christmas language. Yeah, I got it. We got it, got it, got it. But if you read it from the story of people that understand this about the kings, They're crying out for a a legitimate king. And they've not really experienced one since Saul, their very first one. And so Isaiah prophesies that a new king is coming. And he's going to rescue you from all these bad kings. If you choose to let him rule in your life. It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Gideon. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood, when we burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so for us today, as it was for them when Isaiah first spoke these words, there is a king that is promised to us. A king that doesn't set himself over his brother. A king that doesn't go to make war to enlarge his kingdom, and yet his kingdom grows like a little mustard seed eventually grows into a magnificent tree. He will make sure you have food and clothing and that your hurts will be addressed. This is the king that is promised to us. And we think about our own places of leadership and authority and rule in this world which of those two passages of Scripture between Deuteronomy or 1 Samuel are we practicing in our lives? Do we rule over others? Or do we elevate others with the position that we have? Do we push down others? 
or do we lift them up as God lifts us up? See, the kingdom of God is upside down in the kingdom of this world. In the sense that when someone comes and threatens to take our land in the kingdom of God, we say, take it. But in this world, we dare not say, take it. When someone comes and they criticize us to our face, we don't fight back. We turn the other cheek. When someone's in need and we have more than enough, we take what we have and we give to others. Instead of shaming and hurting and damaging others around us, we lift them up and we encourage and we build them up. We have time. We won't do it during this series, but there's really a there's much we could do to talk about power structures in the world versus scripture because the scriptures really talk about power throughout, and it's all an invitation to come back to this good King. In fact, the gentle rule of Jesus, he sums up himself like this in Matthew 11. He says, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the rule that Jesus is offering. Not the kind that break our necks the kind that encourages us, give us rest, and bring us out. These are the questions we're going to have to ask throughout these next few weeks. and that We're going to do that in different ways over these next few weeks. Some of the questions are, uh, what does it mean for God to reign today? Does it mean that we vacate the presidency of the United States of America and we say now Yahweh sits there? I mean, that would be some interesting Congress meetings, right? Uh, that's not what it means. What does it mean for him to reign? Maybe a, maybe a bigger question for us is who or what reigns in our hearts? What's ruling us? Most of us grew up believing that what reigns and rules in our hearts is the need for more, to be honest. I need more. And I, I just wonder if in Matthew 11, when Jesus says... Um, all who are labor and are heavy laden, if he's thinking, that's because you guys are working for all the wrong things. You follow me and you're going to stop working on all those other things and you're going to find rest for your souls. So the bigger question for us throughout this time and the season should be, who or what reigns in our hearts? Why do we push back against allowing God to rule in our hearts and lives? I, I think one of the key things we're going to have to discuss here is in what ways have we misrepresented God? And that the God people are rejecting is not the God of Scripture, but is a God we've created and corrupted. Not actually corrupted God, but His image. How we corrupted it. We, he's incorruptible. We can't corrupt Him, but we can sure misrepresent Him. you all ever had anybody misrepresent you and then it really tick you off? Ticks God off too when we misrepresent Him, by the way. How do we give God full authority on our thoughts, our actions, and our greatest desires? And just like we baptized Lewis today, and we'll baptize a few more in a few weeks, or listen, 
We'll baptize next week. If somebody wants to get baptized, the tub's out. I mean, how are we inviting others into the freedom of being ruled by and with God? Because that's what he's inviting you to. How are we communicating that to other people? See, there's lots of questions, but today what I leave with you is that in, in all of our stories, uh, we know there are oppressive power structures. We know there are oppressive regimes. We know there are oppressive empires, kings, queens, rulers, dictators, and at times presidents. We know what that feels like. At Christmas, we light the Advent candles because it reminds us that God long ago promised us a king were none of those things. And instead, His invitation was beautiful for us. Freedom, joy, rest. I hope you come back next week. We'll light another candle. We're going to continue in this series. We're going to be talking about kingship again. And, uh, and I hope that you'll just choose to be with us throughout this Christmas season. I want to pray with you. We're going to be dismissed. You can then go decorate a tree. Or I will be down here if anyone wants to chat further. I'll be down here to talk as well. Father, I thank You that You are a King who is gentle and lowly. Father, forgive us. Forgive me. And what little piece of authority we get, we use so improperly. Forgive us for the pain we've caused in this world, the pain we've caused others. You've given us example of what a godly leader is, and yet we regularly mess it up. Forgive us. Give us portraying an image of You that's not real, it's not true. The way that we talk to someone, the way that we talk about someone behind their back, the way that we just outright try to lower people so we feel better about ourselves. Give us, because we've missed the Kingdom. Thank You. No matter how many times the nation of Israel turned away from You, You continually were there saying, I am here I am going to rescue you. Thank you for sending your Son. Thank you for no matter how many times we turn away from you, you are here to rescue us. Father, help us follow your rule. Help us to know what that looks like. Make us aware in these coming days and these coming weeks what are the things we've called to rule in our own lives and how do we turn to you instead. Thank you for your love. Your call to love, not only you, but others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Y'all have a great day. Thank you for being here.